Hello, and welcome to Kingwood United Methodist Church. Thank you for joining us today. Wherever you're listening from, and whatever service you're listening to, we strongly believe because of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there is always more to life. Um, it's good to be with you all here this morning. My name is Pastor Jeremy Bass. I am the pastor of discipleship here at the church and also the pastor, uh, the primary preacher of this service that y'all are at right now. So it's good to be with y'all here today. <clears throat> we are nearing the end of our Pursuing Perfection sermon series. And over this sermon series, we've been looking at what are the different ways that our culture calls us to be perfect. What are the different pressures that society is putting on us? And we looked at it, and it's almost like that society expects us to have this sort of 1950s Reader's Digest kind of perfect life. That this perfect life is all about having the right amount of money, having the right car, the right house, all these things that society puts on us and says, you need to have these in order to be perfect in your life. And how often we pursue these things of society, we pursue these things of culture that are given to us. And we looked at the ways in which scripture calls us to live life a bit differently, to not necessarily pursue the things of the world, but pursue the things of the gospel, to pursue the things of God, to pursue God's way of living and pursuing perfection, pursuing holiness and sanctification through the transforming power of Jesus Christ. And so we looked for the first few weeks at the ways in which we can love God, about how God wants us to love him with our whole heart and what does that mean exactly and how we flesh that out. And now we're talking about how do we love our neighbors as ourselves? For if that's the sum of the law, loving God and loving our neighbors, what does that exactly look like? What's the meat to the bones to that command? So today we're looking at this idea of loving our enemies, loving our enemies, and not hating them. I shared with you all a few months ago, I think it was on my forgiveness message, uh, about the time that I got fired from my ministry job, where I went and confessed sin to my boss, and he fired me for it. And I talked about the process of forgiveness that the Lord led me through. But what was interesting in that moment, too, what I found looking back on that sort of four-year journey of forgiveness and four-year journey of healing that the Lord uh, led me through is I uh, hated that man. I hated him deep within my heart. I wouldn't have maybe called it hate in the moment, um, but looking back on it, it was definitely ill feelings toward him. Uh, it was to the point where I remember I called Erica once and I said, uh, I'm never going to another chapel that he speaks at. Like, I will never listen to that man preach ever again. Like, it was, it was sort of this visceral hatred that I had for him. And throughout that journey, I felt the Lord uh, tell me to not hate him anymore. And as he brought healing to my heart and forgiveness to my heart, what I found is that the Lord began to transform and led me to have compassion and love for him. So I'll, I'll talk about that a bit later, but it's this idea that we have those people in our midst who have either done us wrong, whether for just or unjust reasons, that we felt like we've been wronged by them. And so our tendency is to then hate them, to do away with them, to not have anything to do with them anymore, that that is our very natural human response to people who have done us wrong, is to hate our enemies or hate those who have wronged us, to hate rather than to love. But let's look at the call of Jesus here in Matthew 5. 
If you have your Bibles and you want to open up, we're going to be in Matthew 5, starting in verse 43 through 48. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And if you only and are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That if we're going to pursue holiness, we're going to pursue perfection, if we're going to pursue sanctification, if we're going to pursue that second half of the gospel, pursuing all that Jesus has for us, that gospel life that Christ wants for us, we have to be people who pursue loving our enemies as well. We have to be people who pursue loving our enemies. And the command itself here from Jesus, pretty self-explanatory. There's not really much to explain. It's pretty simple. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And yet, I would argue of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it's probably one of the most difficult for us to follow, or it's probably the one that we want to follow the least. If you just look at our culture, just look at our day and age, the way in which we treat one another and the way in which our hearts are bent towards other people who are different from us or believe different from us, it's one often of hatred and not one characterized by love. It's a common belief in this day and age in Scripture where Jesus says, you've heard it say, love your neighbor. That was a command straight from Leviticus, love your neighbor. The phrase, though, hate your enemies, is not from Scripture. That was just a common belief throughout the day. That was a common saying that it's okay that if I'm going to love my neighbor, then that means that it, it must be okay to hate my enemy as well. So Jesus says, this is what you've heard. This is what you've believed, that it's okay to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I'm telling you it's the opposite. I'm telling you to love your enemy to pray for those who persecute you. I mean, I think that's a common belief in our day and age as well. That it's okay to love my neighbor and it's also okay to hate my enemy because of all the, how terrible they are, all the mean things that they've done to me, that it's perfectly all right for me to hate my enemy. That's what's expected of us oftentimes. I mean, if you just look at the political discourse in our country, it's often characterized by hating the other side, regardless of which side you're on. It's characterized by hatred. And often what I'll see many times is in political discourses, someone will try to humanize the other side, and then someone will sit, double down and say, no, that person doesn't deserve to be humanized. They deserve to be hated and scorned because they believe differently from us. That's just characterized by hatred, that there's this divisive spirit in our country that is just so prevalent. I see it all the time. But that's what's common. It's, it's to the point where it's what's expected of us and how we ought to treat those who disagree with. That being a jerk to one another has become normalized. And here we see the command of Jesus. 
in a similar situation where it was expected for the Jews to hate Samaritans. It was expected for the Jews to hate tax collectors. It was expected for the Jews to hate the pagans, to hate the Gentiles. That was perfectly all right for them to do. Here we have Jesus speaking into that. You have heard it say that it's okay to do this, and I'm telling you a different way to live. I'm telling you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And this command by God is hard. I'm not going to shy away from that. It is a very difficult thing to do. In the, in the context of the book of Matthew, this is a climax of chapter 5 that Jesus starts off with kind of some simple commands. And then as he goes on in the chapter, they get more and more difficult until finally it culminates here in chapter 5. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And then at the end of Matthew 5, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's almost like Jesus is raising the bar of discipleship with each and every passing verse. It ends with, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And when we think about this, when we think about living in a day-to-day society, how we live our day-to-day lives, this sounds like nonsense. This sounds like foolishness. This sounds like a dumb way to live, Jesus. Don't you know that it's okay for me to hate my enemies? Don't you know that it's dumb to love my enemies? Don't you know that they're mean to me? Don't you know all the terrible things they said to me? Don't you know, Jesus, that people who persecute you means that they're trying to kill you? Jesus, don't you know this? That's a dumb thing of you to say. You see here that the command of Jesus, though, that these are command tenses, that it's the imperative mood, that these are command words, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. It's almost like Jesus is saying, yes, I know this is difficult, but this is the way that we are supposed to live. This is the way that we are supposed to live differently, that the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world, as Scripture says. You know, this week, as I was prepping for the sermon I felt the Lord say, Jeremy, if you're going to preach a sermon about loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you, I think you should pray for your enemies. And I was like, it's a great point, Lord. Uh, Very, very good point. (laughs) And so in my prayer time this week, I I started to do that. There was this one uh, person that I, or this one group that I know in my heart that I would maybe not necessarily deem as hatred, but I would maybe deem them in my heart as my enemy. Whether I would confess that or not is a different thing, but in my heart and the way that I treat them and the way I think about them, they're my enemy. So I started praying for them, and I'll tell you what, the very first day I did it, I hated it. Oh, it was the worst. And I was like, all right, Lord, are we really going to do this? And he's like, yep, you're really going to do this? Uh, This is what I'm calling you to do? And I was like, all right, Lord, bless them. Amen. But what we find oftentimes is in the middle of prayer, that prayer is not just asking God for things, but prayer is meeting with the divine being. Prayer is meeting with Jesus. And whenever we meet with Jesus, we can't help but be transformed in his presence. So as I began to pray for them, I found, and I've only been doing this for a week, but I found that my prayer began to be transformed. That those sort of inklings of love, those little inklings of compassion, those inklings of grace that can only come from the Holy Spirit are starting to bubble up. Because when we pray for our enemies, what we're doing is we're living the way of Christ. We're living the way of Christ. And so why do we do this? We know the command is simple. So really the question is, what should be our motivating purpose for why we love our enemies? And the first reason is very simple. We love our enemies 
because that's what God does. We love our enemies because God does it. And I feel like I've made this point in almost a lot of sermons that I've done, that the reason we do things is because that's what God does. And I was wrestling with that this week, and I was like, am I just saying the same thing over and over again? But as I reflected on that, I thought, you know what? The reason I'm saying it over and over and over again is because that's what Scripture says over and over and over again. That who we are and what we do is not a reflection of our own goodness, is not a reflection of our own strength, our own power, our own holiness. It's a reflection of what God has already done for us. That we're living into the reality of who God is and living into the reality of the actions of God. That God does this first. It says in verse 45, in Matthew 45, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. Jesus, or God, showing love by causing the Son to rise on the evil and the good. And then later, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, God's mercy and God's grace and God's compassion is not extended just to the good people, it's extended to the bad as well. Thanks again for joining us for today's message. We will return to the sermon in a moment, but first, we would like to ask for you to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We believe God is doing some amazing things here at KUMC, and your feedback helps our church to reach new listeners that we wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. Now, let's get back to the work. That God loves those we deem as enemies. That God loves the unrighteous as well as the righteous. That the Christian actions, that our Christian ethic, that the way in which we live our lives, the way in which God is calling us to do, the way of holiness, the way of sanctification is the way of Christ and it's the way that God lives. And God doesn't tell us to do things that he himself has not already done. God doesn't call us to do things that he himself has not already done. I mean, if you look at the people that Jesus talks about here in this passage, the tax collectors, they were Jews who collaborated with the Roman Empire, the worst of the worst, the oppressors, the ones who had come and taken away uh, autonomy from the Jews. And these tax collectors have collaborated with the empire, and they are oppressing their own people by collecting taxes from them. They are evil, they are scum. Don't they deserve hate? And then later, the pagans, they're the Gentiles. Uh, the Jews saw the Gentiles or the pagans as moral degenerates. They're living outside the law of God, and they're awful people worthy of scorn. If you look in the book of Romans, you'll see this kind of play, this kind of uh, stereotype or this prejudice that Paul plays after. Romans 1 starts off by basically saying, aren't the Gentiles terrible? And you're expecting the audience to see like, yeah, the Gentiles are the worst, boo, Gentiles. And then Romans 2, there's this shift that Paul makes that says, yes, the Gentiles are awful, but you know what? You are just as awful as they are. In fact, you could say even worse because you know what the law is. Now, there's this idea that it's okay to hate our enemy. It's okay to hate them because of who they are and what they've done. But Jesus says that even those people that we hate, even those people that we do not like, like the tax collectors and the Gentiles, they love their own. 
they love their own. And that if you just love your own, you're really not that different from them with your love. That even these people that you deem are your enemies, even these people you deem are the worst, they love their own. And so how are you different if you love just your own as well? And Jesus' point is you're not. You're not different. That we're not different because we just love those who are nice to us. That we just love those who greet us. That God calls us to righteousness and holiness. Righteousness of the heart. And that if we're going to be different, if we're going to pursue a perfection that's different from what the world offers, then we need to be people who have true heart transformation for those around us. And that's only something that God can bring. That we can't transform our own heart. Only Jesus can do that. This is the example of Christ. This is what God does. That God loves his enemies. In the book of Luke, it says this. As Jesus is on the cross, as Jesus is being crucified, literally hanging there, suffering and dying, the people are walking by, mocking him. The Roman soldiers are taking his clothes and they're dividing him, dividing the clothes, uh, casting lots for his clothes. And Jesus is hanging there on the cross and he's naked and he's full of the shame and the scorn and he's suffering both social shame, both social suffering and also physical painful suffering. In the middle of this, we see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, shout out this from the cross. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. Then in the moment of his greatest suffering, in the moment of his persecution, Jesus practices what he preaches. To love his enemies, to literally beg for forgiveness for the ones who are nailing him to a cross. Who are walking by and shouting and mocking them. That this is who Jesus is. This is the example of Jesus. This is what God does. That God loves his enemies. I mentioned this last week, but Romans 5, we know God's love for us because he loved us when we were his enemies. That Christ died for us while we were his enemies. And so in a sense, Jesus is saying this to the Roman soldiers and to the Jews passing by. But you could also say he's saying that to us as well, that we in our sin have put him on the cross as well. That Jesus from the cross forgives us as well. That he loves us as well. What's interesting in that text, uh, the verb tense of that is the imperfect tense, which basically means, uh, so there's two different types of past tense in the Greek. There's one that's like a snapshot, like you're taking a picture, and there's other that sort of implies ongoing action. And this is the ongoing action version of the past tense, meaning Jesus is hanging there from the cross, and he doesn't just say it once, Father, forgive them, but he is hanging there and he is saying over and over again, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. It's this ongoing action of Jesus on the cross. We see that Christ calls us to live in a different reality than the world around us. And it's so different from the world in which we live in. But God is calling us to live into the fullness of life of what it means to be heirs of him and be children of God. 
And the second reason we do this is because this is our inheritance. This is our inheritance that we have been given. I mentioned the person that was uh, the person who fired me in the beginning. You know, uh, right at the end, after this was probably about a four-year journey of forgiveness that the Lord led me on. And this was probably around year four. The Lord brought it up again. He's like, all right, Jeremy, it's time to forgive him again. And I'm like, all right, Lord, uh, I think I'm done with this now. Uh, when are we going to be finished with this? And he said, we're almost done. Um, he said, but this is how I'm going to bring healing into your life and bring freedom into your life this time. I want you to pray blessing for him. I said, Lord, I, I don't want to do that. That's, that's dumb. I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. And so I fought it for about a month, I would say. I fought this call to pray a blessing over this man that I, I hated in my heart. And then finally, you know, the call of God was relentless. And so finally, I just said, all right, Lord, I submit. And so I started praying blessing over him. And it was similar to the situation this past week. I was like, all right, Lord, bless him, keep him. Amen. Good job. But as I kept doing it, as I kept at it, as I kept pursuing the call of God, as I kept pursuing this call of Christ in my life, I found that my heart began to transform. I found my heart begin to get set free from all this bitterness, all this hatred, all this kind of junk that I had in my soul, that as I began to pray blessing over him, as I began to love him through my prayers, I found that Jesus transformed my heart. Because that's what Jesus wants to do. That this is not a strong thing. We don't have to pretend to be strong to do this. We can come in our weakness and come in our saying, Lord, I don't want to do this, but because you said to do it, I am going to do it. And we find that when we are obedient to the Lord and we step into the grace that he is offering out to us, that he is faithful that he begins to work and transform our hearts. And this is the glorious inheritance that we are offered and that we are given. John Wesley famously said he believed that God raised up the Methodist, the Methodist movement to spread what he called scriptural holiness throughout the land. In other words, to this call of sanctification, this call to be like Jesus, this call to living the real Christian life that are found in the gospel pages, that this call to holiness is what God raised this church up to be. That this is the inheritance that we have been given. That holiness is happiness because holiness is a reflection of God who is eternally happy. God who is eternally holy is also eternally happy. That when we live into holiness, we're living into freedom, we're living into joy, we're living into happiness. That this call, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, that you are to be like God is. Where are our eyes? Where are our eyes, friends? Are we so concerned with comparing ourselves to the people around us? Are we so looking around at those around us? Or are our eyes firmly set on the throne room of God? Are our eyes firmly set to where Jesus is in the heavenly places? That we are looking towards Jesus as our example and not the world. Because if we're setting our eyes on Jesus, if we're living and following after God's example then he is the one who brings transformation for us. Scripture teaches over and over again that my neighbor is not my moral standard. You know, oftentimes I think we think, you know, if I'm better than them, I'm all good. If I'm better than my neighbor, then I'm all set. 
And we'll look down on someone like, you know, at least I'm not like them, sort of like the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple. Lord, I thank you that I am not like that person. I thank you I'm not like that degenerate. I'm I'm thankful that I'm not like them. We see here in Scripture that the standard is not our neighbor, but our standard is God. Now, if our standard is God, then we are people living in grace and there's no room for us to boast. Because if God himself is our standard, then we need grace. We need his transforming power. Because friends, I don't know about you, I can't do this on my own. I tried and it doesn't work. I can't live this life apart from him. I can't live into this life that God wants for me without him. But we serve a God who graciously extends his grace so that we can live into that life. And so are we settling Are we settling for just being better than those around us or are we living into the fullness of what Christ wants for us? Are we desiring to be an imitator of Christ, as the scriptures say, to love our enemies and be different from the world? That hatred of our enemies is so commonplace and so normal. Church, I'm so tired of seeing Christians on Facebook talk down to their enemies and hate their enemies and talk about others in a way that does not reflect the way that Christ talks about us? How different would our witness be? How transforming to a world in which hatred is so commonplace, where hatred of enemies is so commonplace, if we showed and demonstrated the love of Christ to them, even though we think they may not deserve it, especially to people we think don't deserve it. That if we who have been so captured by the love of God and know that we have been rescued from the bondages of sin, that we who have been set free by the power of the Holy Spirit to live into the fullness of the gospel, that if we have truly had our hearts and our lives captured by this message, captured by the Lord and captured by the Holy Spirit, how can we not live and be different from everyone around us? And we see an example of this life played out in Scripture The first martyr, the first Christian executed for his faith, we find in the books of Scripture in Acts chapter 7. Stephen, who's being stoned to death, that Paul who orchestrates the stoning of Stephen, that literally as Stephen is being pelted with rocks, as rocks are being thrown against his head and his body and he is dying by being pulverized with rocks, we see Stephen say this, I'm starting in verse 59, While they were still stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Verse 60. Then Stephen fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he said this, he had fell asleep. Euphemism for death. That Stephen's dying breath is loving his enemies and praying for those who are literally stoning him to death. This is a life transformed by the gospel. This is a life, that this is an example that we can be imitators of. And how profound of a witness is that? How profound of a witness is that? How great and wonderful is that witness? See, friends, pursuing perfection is not meant to be a burden. 
I think it's really easy for us to go into these messages and feel a lot of shame and feel a lot of burdens like, oh, this is just another thing that's piling up about how terrible I am. This pursuing perfection, pursuing all that God wants for us is not meant to be a burden. It's meant instead to be our great hope and joy that we serve a God who promises that he can do this in our lives and he will do this in our lives if we just say, yes, Jesus, I want this. That the call of Christ to live differently is also the promise that he will give us the power and ability to do so. That the commands of Christ are also the promise of God to do it in our lives. Because Christ does not give us impossible commands. He does not command impossibilities. What's interesting here at the end of Matthew 5, uh, the be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Uh, That verb, be perfect, it's actually in the future tense. So another way you could translate it is you will be perfect because your heavenly father is perfect. That this is a promise that Jesus seals This command with the promise. John Wesley in his commentary on scripture, he says this about uh, Matthew 5.48, the be perfect passage. John says this, and how wise and gracious is this to sum up, as it were, the seal of all the commandments with the promise. Even the proper promise of the gospel that he put those laws in our minds and write write them in our hearts. He well knew, I love this part, he well knew how ready our unbelief we would be to cry out, this is impossible. But Jesus knew how quickly when we read these commands in scripture, we would be like, Lord, I can't do that, that's impossible. That Jesus knew that. And he says this, and therefore, in light of us knowing that it's impossible, he stakes upon it all the power, truth, and faithfulness of him to whom all things are possible. That Jesus, when he promises us something, he's staking it on his own character. That this is the promise of God. That we can live this transformed life. That we can be different from everyone around us. That we can live into the fullness of freedom and be people who love our enemies. I'm going to invite the band back up. As I close with this story, you may have heard of the story of St. Patrick, or you may have heard of the, the drinking day that St. Patrick's Day is often. Uh, St. Patrick was a real person. Uh, he was a saint, and he was the first, he was the one who evangelized Ireland. For those of you who don't know his story, St. Patrick was captured as a boy at age 16, and he was enslaved by Irish pirates. And he was enslaved by those pirates for six years. And during those six years, he found God again. And when he was captured, he was sort of a nominal Christian on the outskirts, didn't really have a firm belief in God. But in his captivity, he remembered the faith of his youth and he rediscovered Christ. And so after six years, the Lord leads him to escape from Ireland. He goes back to England and he thinks, that's all right, I'm safe. I'm back in England. I'm back home. Everything's all fine and good. And he writes in his autobiography that uh, one time he had this vision he was dreaming and he had this vision of a man and the man handed him a letter and on the top of the letter, the, the front page of the letter, it said, the voice of the Irish. When he opened up and read the letter in his dream, the, the letter said this, we beg you, 
We beg you, holy boy, come and walk among us again. And Patrick says that when I read this, it completely broke my heart and I could read no more and I woke up. So Patrick, hearing that call of God to love and evangelize his former captors, to love those who had literally taken him from his home, dragged him to a foreign country, forced him to a life of slavery, that because of the transforming work of the gospel in his life, he went and evangelized to the very people who had put him in bondage. He converted them to the faith. That this is the story of the kingdom of God that we see played out over and over again, that people who have been grabbed by the gospel, that people whose hearts have been grabbed by the gospel live transformed lives that have this great earth-shaking kingdom impact. That the way of God is wisdom of the world turned upside down. But following Jesus is worth so much more than we can imagine. That Jesus promises us abundant life and that God has the power to transform us so that we can love our neighbors and love our enemies and love all those around us so that we can be a witness to the world and reflect the God who has come to rescue and save us. So as we come forward for Holy Communion, these are the response questions I would encourage you to pray and reflect on before coming up. First one is, do I enjoy hating my enemies? Do I enjoy hating my enemies? And the second is, are my eyes and desires set on the things of God or the things of my culture.